0: Good morning. Okay, Judges 6, 1 through 32. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, in the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number; Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land." And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the telebrinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Bezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and ye shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from Epa, of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the telebranth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff, and was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the bees' rites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order." Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on this that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar.
1: Please pray with me. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this amazing church. I pray that we receive your word today, and that we don't just keep it in our hearts, that we take it out beyond these walls, into our communities, and our fields, and that we are lights to everywhere we are, that we spread your word. Um, we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to, to believe. Amen. Thank you. Well done. Anytime you're reading in, in Judges, in particular, uh, it is quite the venture into names of uncertainty. Um, So grateful for you Herndons for uh, leading us in the ways of reading and praying. Uh, We are in the book of Judges, and um, as we continue on in this uh, crazy book, um, I want to remind you of where we are in this story, right? The context matters on what's happening. Um, Today we're talking about Gideon's call, um, and I think if I had to subtitle today's sermon, it would be like the journey to usefulness, uh, because I think what we see in And Gideon is a little bit about what we see in all of us. When we first hear from God, when he first commissions us to something that we think is crazy, and then we we start to do some things, uh, it's not exactly perfect. And so I think there's a lot of encouragement to be found here in this first part of Gideon. We will have three weeks on this judge, whereas before we've had like... You know, we've covered multiple judges in one week. So, Gideon, we slow down a little bit and we do that on purpose. Um, One of those uh, reasons, because I think there is a lot of encouragement here, it does also take a lot of space in Judges to cover Gideon. So, here's where we are in the context of the story of Judges Uh, the Israelites are coming off of a 40 year period of rest where God has, has provided that rest through the deliverance of Deborah and Barak, if you'll remember from last week, and now 40 years later, uh, with the absence of, those, of that Judge Deborah and that warrior Barak, uh, do you start to see the heart of what's on, in all of us, that when we're not being uh, tended to and looked after by a human repres- representative of God, we tend to stray. And that's exactly where we are uh, when uh, Danielle began to read, I thought, well, that's a really encouraging start, uh, which is the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, but that's all of us, isn't it, on one level or another. But this is what's happening. If you remember the judges cycle that we've been going through, it's again and again that um, ultimately uh, they worship the Lord, right? They come together, they, but they also uh, have false gods alongside the Lord in some ways. So they commit idolatry. God hands them over to an oppressor. Whereas last week, there was political oppression with the Canaanites. Just basically, they just wanted to keep them at bay, keep the Israelites at bay. Uh, this week, there's an agricultural and economic oppression by the Midianites, a little bit different. We'll talk through that. Um, they cry out to God for help, and God answers them by sending a judge, except for this time in the judges' cycle, there's again another new little wrinkle. Not only is the, are the Midianites doing something quite different... But also, God answers by sending a prophet. Now, the Midianites... Um, The thing that was different for their oppression over Israel, as we just read, uh, is that every year uh, they would let the Israelites uh, till the soil and tend to the crop. And right about harvest time, they would come through, it says, like locusts, and drive off the Israelites from their portion of the land into the mountains where they'd had to live in caves for however long. And they would take all of the crops of Israel. They would would slaughter their animals, and they would leave them in poverty for another year. This was going on year after year for seven straight years. You can imagine the poverty and the desperation uh, that would have ultimately taken root in Israel. But God hears their cry, it says, right there in verse 7, that they cried out. God heard the cry, and he does something different that he's not done before in Judges. And he sends a prophet, um, and it is God's grace that God would send prophets to God's people. Because prophets typically do one thing really well. They provide clarity to the situation that you find yourselves in. They provide the why behind the what, right? And he says it's because, in verse 10, it is because you have not obeyed the voice of God. You have not heard his command to not do these things, you have not obeyed. And that is why you are in the situation that you're in. Clarity is a measure of God's grace, though it may pain us at difficult times. It is a measure of God's grace. And so we pick up on the narrative, really in verse 11, where it starts with, and now the angel of the Lord is sitting underneath a tree and watching Gideon from, from afar, which is just such a fascinating reality that God is watching us really in these situations. But as this narrative picks up, what we find is a weak, y'all got to hear this, a weak, scared, and doubting hero of the Bible named Gideon. God chooses to use him long before his people repent. He chooses to use Gideon long before they even realize their wrongs. Too often do we hear, and oftentimes we are told that God will not or cannot, he's limited somehow, he cannot use us until we clean up our act, until we get our life together. It becomes some sort of theological juggernaut. I mean, after all, i got to go through all this theological training before I can do what God wants me to do. It's this linear idea of, mat- of maturing before we go do anything. And it's a lie. It's a farce. We're not in a linear world. We're in a cycle, as we've noticed with the book of Judges. You see, the story of Gideon is going to call out every doubter and every doubt hidden in your heart to come out of hiding and to be seen, and to be spoken, and to be known. To come and see the kind of God that beckons Gideon is the same kind of God that beckons you, and to experience the thrill, yes, I said the thrill of life with the God of the Bible. Many of us are a bit like like Gideon. We have heard the stories of old Right, we've heard all these stories, and he'll, he'll even explain this here in a minute. Like, hey, yeah, I've heard all the stories that you've done with our parents and with, their, with our grandparents. I've never heard all that. But what does that have to do with my life? I think a lot of us are in that situation that we somehow have divorced the theological realities of the Bible with practical living. What does it do, and how does it help me? And so, a lot of preaching these days turns into how does the Bible help you raise your kids, make money? make a good marriage, all those types of things. Not bad, but there's a whole lot more there than just practical reasoning. And I think God is going to invite us into the deeper waters today. So we enter into this story of Gideon where our lives aren't all we had hoped they'd be out here in the suburbs. And ultimately, we enter into this story where God reframes our story. He reframes our story as he reframes it for Gideon. And as we see how to become ultimately useful for the Lord, it starts with God's call of Gideon. That Gideon gets called long before he is ready, but it's really quite fascinating. In verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth and Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite." That's right. That's, that's, I'm pretty sure that's how you say it perfect pronunciation. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Interesting thing about this is that Gideon is doing what is traditionally a woman's job in that culture, and he's doing it underneath hiding in a wine press, and God enters into that space, and he gives him a new identity. And he says, O mighty man of valor, verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, The the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You mighty warrior. You courageous one. What? He's hiding. You courageous one. You mighty one. You mighty man of valor. Before God gives Gideon a job, which we, we, he will give him, he gives him a new identity. God is more concerned about the who of who we are than the what of what we'll accomplish in the world. But God does not commission us to do things that he won't equip us with. He will, though, equip us along the way. He calls us to do things that we don't think that we're capable of. We're gonna to get to that in a minute. And the first thing that he does to equip us is to make sure that we see ourselves like he sees us. Almighty oh, man of valor. And you're going to find all the insecurities and all the reasons that Gideon is going to come up with here in a minute. But it does not deter God ultimately from calling him to do something that even Gideon doesn't think he's capable of. God sees the truest version of ourselves inside of each one of us and calls that version of us, that person, out of the deep inside of us, the deep parts, the recesses of our hearts, and he calls it to the surface to be seen and known and encouraged. God does that when we become believers. You have a new identity. It doesn't matter the kind of family that you came from. Doesn't matter, I mean, amen to that, y'all. Doesn't matter the family that you came from. Doesn't matter the failures of the family that you're building right now. He instead doesn't say, oh, well, if you just had the right heritage. I'd accept you. He instead says, You're my son and you're my daughter. Doesn't matter how much sin you've just gotten into in the last 24 hours or however many days, he still labels you in the New Testament not as a sinner every time, but as a saint. To the saints, in Philippi to the saints in Ephesus to the saints in Rome it is to the saints the holy ones not those marred by difficulty and sin it doesn't matter how much you've been hiding in the darkness this last week he still says you are the light of the world he is putting on you an identity far before he ever calls you to do anything That's good news for us because we could try to work ourselves into being the light of the world and you will fall short and you'll always go, Man, I'm not the light of the world. I always fall short. I never can really do that right. And the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't depend on your performance, it depends on what God says about things. And just like Gideon, he puts these new identities in us so that we can live out of them, not try to perform enough to gain them. That's every other religion in the world. That is not Christianity. It is exactly like Brennan Manning says when he said this long ago, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. And he'll go on to say, because you'll never be as you should be. He accepts you and loves you exactly as you are, y'all. Just like with Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor, even though you may be hiding and doubting and weak in the moment. Mighty, mighty warrior. God patiently dispels our doubts, just like he did with Gideon by declaring his presence with us. And he says, the Lord is with you. And it's at that point that Gideon begins to put up a fight. If you'll notice in verse 13, says, oh, I mean, th- God has not even done anything yet. The angel of the Lord still has not called him to do anything yet. And in verse 13, right after, he says, this new identity is yours, Gideon. Gideon says, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, and he starts to make all of these theological assumptions, why then has all this happened to us? Why are the Midianites continually coming against us? You see, if God is here, and I don't think he is, then why is it that we're suffering so greatly? He starts with this theological argument to say, look, you can say all you want, crazy guy that's been sitting underneath a tree in my front yard for the last half hour. I don't believe you. I don't believe you about my identity and I certainly don't believe you about your declaration that God is present amongst his people. You can hear Gideon, can't you? If God were with us, we wouldn't be suffering. If God is for us, we wouldn't have so much going against us. If God were good, why do innocent people suffer? Oh, sure, God showed up for our grandparents long ago, and he split the seas and all the things we've heard about, but he hadn't done anything for us, at least in the last seven years, with these Midianites taking everything that we've got. Yeah, he healed and did mighty works in the past, But God doesn't operate that way anymore. You can hear it, can't you? You can see it all around us. We're in this same world. For Gideon, God's presence meant circumstantial peace. Oh, God's with us? Well, then why are all these circumstances so messed up? But God is going to come and turn that all around and say it's not about circumstantial peace. It's about peace in the midst of circumstances, difficult circumstances, oppression upon oppression, years of oppression. God's presence means you are in the presence of peace personified. If you skip ahead in this chapter when Gideon says, all right, I need a sign here, Lord. I need a sign that you're doing all this. I need a sign that it's really you. And then he dictates terms on the sign. He goes, all right, angel of the Lord, I want you to sit right here if you could. I'm going to go get all these things prepared for you. And then you're going to do some magic trick to show to me and prove to me that you are who you say you are. And do you know what God does? He waits He patiently lets him get all that he needs to get to bring over to him. He touches it with a staff. It burns up into fire. It gets consumed, which is a a beautiful picture of God's presence in the Old Testament. It's fire coming down. You'll see this in Elijah, right? You see this all throughout Exodus, right? It's a beautiful picture that God truly is with you. And God, when Gideon figures out that it's God himself that he's been talking to, if you read it, alas, Gideon realizes it's the Lord. And he's like, Don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Right there in, oh, I don't know, verse 23. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. It is peace that God gives to the doubter, it's peace that God gives to the weak, to the powerless to the one who's going to call into question God's character based on my own circumstances. He meets us in that moment. And it's a really beautiful thing that the God of peace, the Lord of peace, that is his name. It is his identity. It's not just what he offers you. It's who he is. So if we're going to be people that get wrapped up in the story of God, we've got to get pe- be people that ultimately get near the God of peace, just like Gideon. It's not just what he has to offer us, it is absolutely who he is. Oftentimes, we experience trials and difficulties and wonder where God is in the midst of it. This is the, a very natural uh, understanding of what happens when we go through trials, but can I say, it's orphan mentality. Where is God when I don't get what I want? Where is God when it's really difficult in life? This week, you will have that thought, what are you doing, Lord? Have you forgotten? I've had that thought many times. And yet, if we are to take on God's fatherhood over us, when we go through trials as sons and daughters, our father isn't just enduring whatever trial we're in with us, he's leading us through it. He's not just enduring, he's leading us. You remember uh, what happens during Lent, which we're going to celebrate during Ash Wednesday and onward? We follow Jesus into the desert where he is led by the Spirit and tempted by the devil. They go hand in hand to be led by the Spirit and yet tempted by the devil. There will be tough circumstances, but the good news is that your Father is leading you through those circumstances. See, God is less interested in changing our circumstances, making them more palatable for us, and instead, he is more interested in creating in us a heart that will love him through every circumstance, that we might be changed like Gideon from doubting God in his view on the world to being convinced that if God is for us, then truly, who can be against us? So God's call for Gideon is ultimately our call. But he doesn't stop there, right? On the journey to being useful to the Lord, he also commissions Gideon, as he also will commission us. That commission is found in verse 15. Let's read it together. And he said to him, please, Lord. Yep, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? No, let me go back up to 14. My bad, that's on me. And the Lord turned to the hand of Midian and the, Lord, uh, excuse me, "'And the Lord turned to him and said, "'Go in this might of yours, <laughs> "'o oh mighty man of valor, "'and save Israel from the hand of Midian. "'Do not I send you?' "'And he said to him, "'Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? "'Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, "'and I am the least in my father's house.' "'And the Lord said to him, "'But I will be with you, "'and you shall strike the Midianites.' as one man. God's commission over Gideon is further and deeper and wider than even Gideon could have ever imagined, and yet God is undeterred in his calling and his commission of Gideon. Gideon had theological doubts, and when that doesn't work, he begins to start getting real practical with the angel of the Lord and saying, I don't know if you know who you've uh, called mighty man of valor here, uh, but my family is the worst of the worst, Like, I got, my dad doesn't like me. Uh, Our tribe is just trash in Israel. We're not looked at by anybody as being people that would be used of God. We're the worst here, and you're coming to me and telling me that we're going to do mighty things. I don't know if you know who I am, O angel of the Lord, but you got the wrong guy. I'm not him. And yet, God ultimately sees this, and he sees him as ready I don't know uh, if you've had children, but if you have had children, I remember this is, I kind of feel the way that Gideon felt when I had my first child, or I didn't have it, I just watched, really. I just stood by and panicked. Um, but I got up from a nap during our first child. It was quite crazy. My wife was super excited about that, um, that I was napping while she was laboring. So I got up, and um, and we and, and she gave birth to a beautiful baby. Her name is Reese. She was born in downtown Dallas, and we lived like a mile and a half away from uh, Baylor, downtown Dallas, uh, in these little apartments when we were in seminary, and um, and and we, 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 they, you know, they just give over a human being to you after a day. There's no instructions, there's no best practices, uh, there is, no, there's not a lot of help, I gotta tell you. And I remember her carrying our child down to the car in the baby carrier for the first time, clipping that thing in like it was the real deal, and I had a mile to go, and I white knuckled it all the way home. Because I knew in that moment, I am not ready for this. I thought I was ready until that reality hit me. And I got in the car and I was like, we are going straight home at 20 miles an hour. I don't care what happens. We're going to make it. We got precious cargo here and I am not even going to blink, much less take my eye off the road. In that moment, I thought, man, there's no way I'm ready for this task. But apparently God thought I was. You know how I know that? Because that's what I was doing. God had already prepared my wife's heart over the last nine to ten months. He certainly still had some preparation going on in my own heart. But that, oh my gosh, moment is what happens when each of us, each of us get commissioned to do something, whether it be parenting, starting a new business, staying in a job that you hate. Whatever it is, like maybe it's, it's, it's forgiving and reconciling with a family member. Maybe it's going to counseling to deal with some frameworks that are just off. It could be something really simple or something really difficult. That There are times in our lives where God will put before us the next thing that we know we're supposed to do, and we'll go, yeah, I'm not ready for that. I need more equipping for that. I need to go to a class for that. No, you don't. The baby is in your hands, and the time is now. And God will equip you along the way. You see, here's the reality, and this goes all throughout the Bible God calls you to do things you cannot do with resources you do not have for the rest of your life. Let me say it again God calls you to do things you cannot do with resources you do not have. For the rest of your life. It was the same with Gideon. It was the same with the disciples. You guys remember in, uh, oh, what is it? Like uh, Mark chapter 6 where he feeds the 5,000. Do you remember how he fed the 5,000? And you're going to say, with the five loaves and the two fish. And I'm going to say, but did you remember who he said to feed the people? When they come to him, they go, hey, we don't have any food. Maybe we should send these people home. And Jesus looks at them and they go Home? Where are they going to go at an hour when the sun's already setting? They can't go home. they got hours of a hike to go back home. Why don't you feed them? Why does he do that? Ever wonder what Jesus is up to in that moment? Knowing he knows that he's about to do what he's about to do. Why does he tell his disciples, you feed them? Because he calls us to do things we cannot do with resources that we do not have for as long as we will walk with him. He wants to soften their hearts on what a life of dependence looks like. He wants to soften our hearts on what a life of being commissioned to do things that we cannot do without God showing up with his resources will be done. I don't know really what it is that you have been called to do. I don't know if it is to start a business or a family or go to counseling or forgive someone that you think is unforgivable, though those are all in the Bible. Well, maybe not start the business. Most of those are in the Bible, right? But you have a commission, and that commission is in Matthew 28 where he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the very end of the age. That is your commission, Christian. That is your calling in life. So I wonder, for those of us that have been in the church for any length of time, when is the last time that you've made a disciple? When is the last time that you've shared the gospel? Let's back it up. When is the last time you've baptized someone? This should be normative practices, and I don't want to put a lot of oughts on you, but I do think we need to call ourselves back to the commission of God to ultimately look out at the harvest, so to speak. It's what Luke 10 says. John says, look out at the harvest. Consider it. It is ripe. It is ready. But guess what? The workers are are few. They're hiding in the wine press, separating the wheat from the chaff, hoping not to be noticed by God or anyone else. And yet God has found all of us in the darkness, brought us into the light so that we might do something that we cannot do. You know you can't make a disciple? It's the one thing God calls you to do and you lack the power to do it. When I say this is all of our story in Gideon, it's all of our story throughout the Bible. We can't do this on our own. We lack the resources, and yet God calls us to do it in his power. How will that happen? Because, oh mighty men and women of valor, the Lord is with you. That's the promise. Not that you're gonna go out and reap this plentiful harvest, although you'll never know until you go out to the harvest. You see, that's that's the issue, right? So we look at this call and we go, Well, we know if I can do all that. We know if I'm equipped to do that. I don't know what they'll say to me. This is gonna cause some awkward tension at the workplace. I might lose my job. And we have all of these false gods just creeping into our hearts and tearing our attention away from the one true God who does promise in the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. You want to know how we're going to do this? It's by God's presence. It's the same thing that he said to Gideon, right? Right? God's power is made evident in his presence. In verse 12, when the angel appears, he says, the Lord is with you. In verse 16, when Gideon protests, he says, I don't really think I can do that. My family's all kinds of jacked up. He says, yeah, but I've sent you and I will be with you. In verse 18, when he's demanding a sign, again, the angel of the Lord says, I'll stay until you return. No problem. You want to go get all the things you want to get? I'll be right here when you get back. He will wait you out. So Christian, This is going to be a bold statement, but I'm going to try and say it anyways, as as gently and and yet forthrightly as I can. Could it be that you're bored with Jesus because you too fall underneath this prophetic word that you've not obeyed His voice? Could it be that we're we're just like ah yeah, He doesn't really give me what I want, and you know, when when did that become the mission? When did that become the circumstance through which we? We strive and, and make every effort to attain in our lives. It's not the mission. The mission is to make disciples, to see them mature over time, and to multiply them out, to go and make disciples. You see, I think that sometimes we, we read God's Word and we separate ourselves just like a Gideon, but Jesus calls us to do something different. In John chapter 15, my favorite verse in the Bible, John fifteen five, because it reminds me, I need to stay close. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, this is the warning, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me, check the promise out. And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I don't know about you, but that's a crazy statement. Ask whatever you wish, and consider it done. But don't take it out of context. That whatever you wish, that will be the overflow of abiding. It's not just whatever you want. It's really whatever's in alignment with what God wants. Because it comes after the command to stay close to Jesus, to keep his words flowing in and through you. So we can ask, and he will hear us because he's our dad. And he will give to us what he's promised including the making of disciples, including the thing that you might be thinking, man, I don't think I can do that. So will you you look at your own shortcomings when he commissions you to do the impossible? Or will you trust him? Will you have soft heart that when he tells you, will you feed them? I don't know if I have the resources for that. You don't, but I'll give you the resources for it. You know, remember what happened in that story? They had not just enough for 5,000. It was just 5,000 men, which meant could have been upwards of 10, 15, 20,000 people there. Then they had leftovers. God, too, will feed you. God, too, will feed others through you if we will abide and trust and continue to press in and believe him for this commission and these promises. But it doesn't end there, and this is where I'll end. God's call is there. God's commission is there, and now Gideon goes forth with conviction. When the angel of the Lord proved it was God who, has, who was with Gideon in verse 21, right? he, he touches the, the gift and it proves to Gideon that it is truly God that is with him. Ultimately, Gideon responds by building an altar to the Lord. And this is no small thing. Before Gideon wars against the Midianites, He first has to war against the Israelites. Now that's some crazy talk right there, that he's going to go to war against his own people. But he doesn't do it through military might. He he does it through spiritual fortitude. God calls Gideon to pull down the altars of Baal and cut down the Asherah. It says in verse 25, read this with me now. uh, That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, or Baal, that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Where is this false idol? It's in his own backyard. Gideon's fight to take down the Midianites starts in his own backyard yard. And when he takes down those idols, the men of the town figure out what's going on and they want to burn or take down Gideon. Who are those men of the town? The Israelites. Those are God's people now looking at God's chosen instrument and saying, your dedication to God is radically inconvenient to my life and I'd like to kill you now. Friends, when you stand up for the Lord and you do some weird things like go and make disciples, not everybody's going to be a huge fan. It's going to look a whole lot different than maybe even the Christians around you. Even the Christians around you, perhaps more than anyone, will feel more uncomfortable due to your faithfulness because it exposes them in their lack of faith. But be not deterred. Stay the course. Tear down the false idols around you and in your own hearts and build up the true idol where you can worship the king. Now, here it is, right? It's no wonder there that Gideon does this, though, as they're trying to kill him under the cover of night. I found this to be the most encouraging verse for me. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants, in verse 27, and did as the Lord had told him. Now, friends, but because he was too afraid of his family, And the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. I find that deeply encouraging. Ultimately because there's, a, I think, a book title out there with this same phrase that I'm about to use. I have no clue if that's the book for you. It's probably a self-help book. I have no idea but I, it felt familiar to me what I'm about to tell you and I Googled it and there is a book out there so I, I'm, not, I'm not saying like this book's awesome. I have no clue. But Gideon, under the cover of night, tore down the altars, built another one, sacrificed a bull in the worship of God but did it at night and not where everybody else could see him and he did it scared. That's the phrase. To do it scared. So friends, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, do it terrified Do it absolutely afraid of what might happen next. Do it, though. He didn't wait for the hard thing to be easy. The hard thing became easy as he did it because he was God who did it with him. So when we enter into Lent in the next couple of weeks, when we get to this war that's waging on in our souls, I want you to kind of remember this moment. Remember the moment where where Gideon goes in the cover of night, tears down the altars to Baal and Asherah, and builds up a new altar to the Lord. Though it was at night, he did it faithfully. It wasn't perfect. It was through cowardice, and that's all of us too. We don't do this perfectly. We do this poorly. We had a counselor back in the early days of our uh, marriage, and he would say to us, anything worth doing, is worth doing poorly. What does that mean? It means just get going. Don't wait until you've got, got all the skills to do what you're called to do or when it gets comfortable or easy. Go and do it and fail forward. Fumble into whatever success looks like. And as we do, we've got to do two things. We've got to tear down the false altars and we've got to build up a new altar to the one true God. So as we end, what altars have you unknowingly built in your homes and in your hearts? The altar of comfort? The altar of convenience? Ever wonder why you long to be on social media or just enthralled in a new Netflix show? Why it is that you need to entertain yourself? Maybe it's the idol of practicality, that uh, I'm not going to do it unless I know this is all going to work out. Or maybe you've fallen into addiction, subtle addiction. Ever wondered why it is that your heart is being tugged into those directions again and again to find rest for your anxious mind, just to t- turn everything off or relief from a chaotic world, and just be like, I don't know, I can't handle this anymore, so I'm going to go and do X, and that's going to give me some temporary release, but not the rest that God wants. See, if it's anxiety that it is that's ruling in your heart, this false God that may be there, Gideon knew what that meant to be fearful of the unknown. That's what anxiety is. You're just afraid of what you don't know. He knew what it meant to be fearful of the unknown, and God met him there. He promised his presence to be with him, and he still called him to tear down the altar of certainty, the altar to the false God of certainty so that he could trust in the God who doesn't promise successful outcomes in life but promises to be with you. Perhaps it's self-image, again, like Gideon, that like, man, I'm just, I come from a, like a weak family. My tribe is no good. We've never been really known for anything. We're not the warriors that you think I am. God Perhaps you struggle with insecurity. God knows exactly what that means. And Gideon knew exactly how that felt, that you feel insecure ultimately. But he also knows that you are called to find your confidence and security in him. So God met Gideon there and he will meet you where you are to promise you again his presence, so that just like he took when he took Gideon's weakness and insignificance and transformed it by a new identity and called him a mighty man of valor, surely you can hold on to the same sorts of identities that God is calling you into. But maybe it's true what Paul wrote all those years after Judges in Second Corinthians twelve. That my grace is sufficient for you. That my power is made perfect in weakness. The problem is, man, we hate weakness, don't we? I was at a meeting this week with a bunch of church planters, and this guy stood up, and he said, who of you would like to be known for being weak and powerless? And I'm glad he prefaced it with, don't raise your hands. Although I think it would have been the same result with no one raising their hands. Because ultimately, no one wants to be known for that, but God here using a very weak, feeble, doubting person, just like he's using us to do some really significant things. Maybe not to go and defeat the Midianites, but certainly to tear down altars, altars to false gods that we've created along the way so that we might build up, ultimately, our lives being this beautiful living sacrifice to the one true God. So let me pray for us. Let's get wisdom from the Spirit on how we might put this into real life. Holy Spirit, would you help us see how our lives could be changed if this was true? Better said, how if we believed that this was true? Holy Spirit, there are many applications, many false gods like John Calvin said long ago, our hearts are factories for idols. We just keep pumping them out. So maybe it's just in this moment. Where we just need to identify some, some lies we've been believing. About what life is about. Success. Success material things, accumulation, achievement, recognition, being left alone, peace, comfort, all the things that you called to give us, but only through Christ. Not through our own efforts, but through you. And so maybe this is just a moment where we can identify what it is that's been drawing at our hearts, clawing at our affections And once we identify those things that are brewing in the backyard of our, our hearts and our homes, would you give us the courage to tear it down? Maybe it's at the cover of night. Maybe we don't let anybody else to know what's going on. But may we tear those false uh, altars down. Though we have doubts and difficulties and hang ups and worries, Lord, that does not stop you from calling us to do really difficult things. And I pray, Lord, that we would operate out of that new name that you've given us. That new identity that you've given all of us. Salt of the earth, light of the world, son or daughter, blood bought, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That those are the things that we wake up in. Not, oh man, I got to go do this again, or oh wow, I really messed that up yesterday. But every day, by your new mercy, you would renew in us a heart to worship because you've allowed us to remember all that you've done. May we honor you, may we tear down the altars to false idols, and may we glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name do I pray. Amen.